Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. On this week's episode, we skip the interview and go right to the weekly rundown show with John Ruffalo. All right, John, welcome back to the tank. Obviously, we've got your former uh, company back in the news again after leaving Europe. They are now back with another headline that says the head of Omer's Ventures, Damien Steele, is leaving Omer's to lead clean tech startup Deep Sky, founded by the Hopper CEO. Fred Lasson. Interesting move here uh, to see someone of such stature in Canadian venture go over and uh, basically join a, a Series A startup. What are your thoughts here? And um, how do you think this sort of represents the changes of the guard with uh, Michael Yang, who's also the first, I believe, non-Canadian resident basically running the ship at Omer's Ventures based in uh, the Valley? Good news for uh, for for Damien and, and uh, Fred. Fred's has an interesting uh, new startup, but let's let's talk about the impact to Omer's and more particularly to the Canadian environment. You know, when I had left Omer's, there was four managing directors that took care of investment activities in Canada alone, and there was eight globally. There's now one and focused in San Francisco, zero in Canada, and they have the shutdown of Europe. You know, what it does look like to me you combine this with the news of the replacement of the uh, leadership of the growth equity team, you really have the effective call it slow, slow shutdown of the innovation strategy of, of Omer. Certainly in Canada, that is a very big hole to fill, especially from someone who filled that hole as the dominant investor over a decade in Canada. Right. So maybe, you know, extrapolating this sort of uh, cascade of news uh, across the Canadian landscape is what you're saying that maybe there's just not as much attention going to be given to Omer's Ventures uh, innovation investments going forward. We're, we're not hearing that. We're obviously speculating. But is that the sort of uh, message that some people may take away from this from a Canadian lens? When you add in the chain of events, the replacement of a chief investment officer the change in interest rates, a shift perhaps to more conservative investments in fixed income, perhaps away from the perceived higher risk, uh, you have a situation of lower liquidity. And the last thing I would say is probably didn't help where a huge amount of investment activity for both businesses combined occurred between 2019 and 2021 at the absolute peak of a market where those returns are going to be ugly likely for a long time just point to you know the tiger situation and i think we talked about this whenever you uh buy high and sell low might not be the greatest way to uh, have prosperity in the long run. Yeah. And then before we jump into the tiger situation, because we're definitely going to touch on that, you know, are you saying also there's this sort of duration mismatch on what Omer's looks at from their entire portfolio and their requirements on the pension side, obviously? And maybe, you know, can you give us some idea of who you think will fill this gap? Because uh, it is a pretty big gap from where Omer's was playing. Who do you think will? Well, you know, you talk about the mismatch. Well, it is funny because the stated objective is a pension fund is a long-term capital pool that is designed to withstand cycles. Well, we're, that's, not exa- that's not what we're seeing here. It's going the opposite way. So are we, in fact, seeing 
the movement occurring because of cycles. That's not what has historically been said. Does it mean that this is a great opportunity for the private venture capitalists in Canada to fill the vacuum? And should pension funds play more their role being investors in venture funds and then taking uh, co-investments with them, which many of the great these uh, pension funds in Canada already do to great success. So maybe that really is the path, which might bode very well ultimately. But you know, time will tell if that's what what in fact happens. Right. So what you're saying is like kind of look at the American model of what the pension funds there, the Calpers do, right? The Texas teachers, you know, they're the ones investing through the the fund model to get their exposure to the innovation economy, but not taking this sort of market timing risk and then matching it off with their duration risk. Correct. Okay. So let's jump into the next part of this. This is the uh, liquid liquidity crunch that we're hearing making waves across the ecosystem. Tiger Global, there was a memo that was leaked. It was a mysterious memo, which you and I both <laughs> read end to end, which a lot of people are just reading the headlines on. I actually read the entire- No, you have to read, the whole, read the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, Tiger's point of view is this is coming out of a disgruntled former employee. Some other people say it was a article that was being written and drafted for the New York Times. Who cares where it was written or whatnot? But what are your thoughts? Because I have a lot to say on this. You know, even if 60% of it is actually factual, it's still pretty damaging. And um, I just can't imagine any LPs wanting to take more risk on a firm like this that's already kind of been dragged through the mud. Yeah, so so the article did surprise me. So so let me say start off with what didn't surprise me. Tiger shitting the bed on massive boneheaded private investments that were so egregious, so irresponsible. I really was familiar with only the Canadian ones they did and even the entrepreneurs couldn't believe it. And now they've really created damage in Canada. But we knew about that. And I think you and I had talked about it. What I didn't know is that I thought that their public hedge fund business was was rock solid. And apparently it's not. That's number two. And then number three, and I, I know it's more titillating, but the bad boorish behavior by particularly one of the two co-founders was rather astonishing. And I think... That might be the part of the story that's going to hurt them the most because the capital pools do not want to be associated with that sort of behavior. And again, it's only alleged behavior at this point, but I guarantee you they're digging in and asking a lot of questions. Yeah, exactly. I think what the takeaway from this article, uh, this memo that someone circulated was not actually the financial performance that was shocking, which we all kind of knew from the headlines. It was more the miscommunication with LPs, the lying to LPs, you know, the gatekeeping on redemptions or just managing other partners in the firm and how the two partners were kind of pushing through their own their own mandates and their own visions for the business. You know, the pre-IPO investment that almost went awry and we work, you know, that was shocking. You know, there was just so many different things that I as a GP take away from that. And it wasn't at all from the financial performance. Yes, they have had a terrible run selling China uh, equities at the bottom of the market, you know, going all in and overweighting themselves on these crazy high-flying public tech companies at the wrong time. But really, it was just the over-communi- miscommunication with LPs, 
this like employee disgruntled, you know, conversations that people left, the female partnered left. Um, You know, what do you take away from this as a GP yourself managing LP capital? You know, the message that I got left, and I think it was kind of in the article is that when LPs are looking to invest in a particular uh, fund, they look at past performance performance they they may look to see oh here's where others are going but are not really doing the diligence and one of the things that i was quite uh, shocked about i think you were too is how much they took advantage of the lps and i know that you go to great pains to over communicate and anything that's even remotely close to a gray line you always favor the LP because it's a long-term relationship. They might not come back if you treat them terribly. It's almost like they just forgot that that principle. And you know, and and I think that this is a great lesson. Every GP should read this and say, I will not at all treat my LPs anywhere like this and give them the the respect that they totally deserve. Yeah, it's like you. it takes you 10, 20 years to build long-term relationships with these LPs and it takes you one stupid mistake to throw it all away. And they just did one stupid after another mistake. You know, the part about how they were trying to, on the surface, say, oh, we're not going to take any fees or, you know, we're going to reduce our fees for LPs, but then we're going to charge back expenses because in the LPA, there's, you know, there's management fees, but there's also charges to the LPs on like fund formation, legal docs, all that stuff. You know, they were going to charge that back to the LPs. We all know that they paid Bain $100 million a year for those outsourced due diligence contracts. Like it just started to get really muddy. And I agree as an, a GP, I have to treat that very seriously. And, and and for what, really, at the end of the day, these were v- likely very minuscule amounts in the whole scheme of things. It's just pure, it, lo- it looks like, again, it's alleged, but it looks like pure greed at this point. Yeah, I know. It's And the, the, the dagger, I think, for me was like when the uh, Coleman GP basically said, like, I'm done. I don't give a shit anymore when he was at, you know, his uh, birthday party. Who knows if that was taken out of context, but it kind of just shows you that the relationship with the GPLP was just totally broken down. But uh, we'll see what ends up happening if the firm ends up, you know, surviving this as they are trying to, basically by putting out a Forbes article saying that this was released by a disgruntled former employee and it was not really accurate. But I'll leave it there for now. And last but not least, OpenAI released their paid version of ChatGPT for large businesses. Uh, on Monday this week, you know, calling this the biggest announcement since it debuted its customer version of the chatbot in November. You know, we pay for ChatGPT Premium. I assume this is sort of a, a tack on to that. And basically, what they're saying is ChatGPT Enterprise can now accept much larger prompts, longer prompts, more uh, encryption and other privacy safeguards. You know, to run OpenAI's most powerful models, GPT for on your own uh, server. They say that more, to, more than 80% of Fortune 500 companies have used ChatGPT you know, with early corporate clients turning it uh, for coding, creative work, you know, answers to business questions. What do you make of this? And do you think this is going to disrupt a lot of the, the startups that kind of thought they would be able to create their own businesses uh, selling to enterprises? Well, there's two things. Number one, the, let, me, let me start with the confusing thing. So at the same time, Microsoft announced their own application <laughs> layer AI, where it seems to be competing against this, and yet they're the biggest, I don't know how to call them an investor, because I don't even know what Microsoft actually has uh, in, in, in open AI, but it, it, it is 
feeling like everyone is ultimately chasing the application layer where the money is really going to be made. And OpenAI, I suspect that they were trying to distinguish themselves by being focused only at the LLM layer and now wants to be certainly at the middle, at at the middle layer, uh, certainly between applications and the infrastructure layer. But maybe this is another grab to simply gut fully right through to the ultimate customer. And you're absolutely right. And now finds himself potentially in competition with not three or five or 10 companies, but, but hundreds of thousands of them. So it's fascinating to watch, but they got to be careful too on how many flanks they can fight at the same time. Yeah. I feel like they're like going after so many different horizontal use cases so quickly um, because there's a, a ton of pull from the market, but you're right. Are they spreading themselves too thin and are they exposing them to some really sticky situations or even, shall I say, lawsuits that could come from beginning uh, to operate in this type of like very safe and secure promise and not being able to deliver on those when things maybe get you know exposed through hacks or cybersecurity risks and things like that? It's, uh, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. And the other thing is too, and let's compare it to an application company in Canada. Let's just use ADA as an example. So are you going to trust a company that eats, sleeps and drinks customer service or customer success and really understands the corporate enterprise and the ultimate customer experience? Or are you going to trust someone who's focused in on so many different applications that nothing is particularly good. This is why it was actually a very good solution for the consumer level and perhaps the SMB level. But for enterprise, you know, for me, the jury is out, but I do find this all fascinating. Yeah. One thing I got to ask you on, um, I don't know why this keeps happening, but we have these storied firms that come into Canada with their uh, consumer, uh, you know, businesses, and then they pick up and leave because something's going on with our supply chain. So you've got Kleenex leaving Canada. I know it's a silly headline, but it does sort of make you wonder, like, why is it so hard for American businesses to service the end consumer in Canada? And is it because of our supply chains are so broken or because of all the fees and tariffs and taxes and stuff that we put on these, you know, uh, foreign companies to operate here that it's just not worth it because our population is the size of California? Well, that one there, that, that actually surprised me. I actually even tweeted that. Like, okay, yes, you're not the market leader. You're in the top three. There is a rule of three that they're likely making money. I don't understand. Expanding to Canada is like expanding to a northern U.S. state. Because the population and the supply chain, warehousing, distribution is all just you know congregated along the the border that one there is a big head scratcher it like and you know we're a 40 million population yeah you know compared to the US you know we're not enormous but 40 million is is not insignificant either so i don't really know and was was it really that they were losing money but i don't know why they would and you know and and their brand now I don't know. When I reached to blow my nose, uh, 
I used to always say, you know, pass me a Kleenex. Now I've got to say, uh, what is it, facial tissue now? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that. No, I, I think it has to do with our supply chains and how, um, you know, more expensive it is to operate. Because, you know, if they were making money, if their uh, factories are running at full utilization, like you wouldn't have this. You've had Nestle, you know, do the same thing and pull out of here. It makes you think like why the Costco model is so perfect is because manufacturers drop off goods at a warehouse and they turn it around and sell it right away when the consumers come there. There's no logistics cost for them. Like they're net positive in their cash flow. It's incredible, you know, because they pay their suppliers on net 30 and consumers buy it within, you know, 12 days or something. (laughs) So uh, I think it's interesting. Hopefully we don't see more of this, but always appreciate you jumping in the tank, John. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.